When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Moth is a great podcast to hear true stories told by people from all walks of life in front of live audiences. And The Moth is bringing you a very special episode about a galaxy far, far away. In honor of May the 4th, or Star Wars Day, they're going to feature hilarious and heartwarming stories about the way that Star Wars has changed people's worlds. Listen now by searching The Moth on Spotify, Apple, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. I'm Eric Malinsky. One of my favorite novels that I read this summer is called Babel. It's by R.F. Kuang, who is best known for writing the Poppy War Trilogy. Babel takes place in a 19th century where Britain is ruling the world through enchanted silver. And the silver can do wonderful things like support old bridges, but the enchanted silver can also do horrific things, like create shackles that cast a spell on enslaved people. The spells that bind the silver rely on languages from around the world, and the magicians casting the spells are students at Oxford, who came from countries that are colonized or marginalized. At first, the students are dazzled to be at the center of learning and magic, but that feeling doesn't last. It's a fascinating book, and it reminded me of another book that I liked from 2019, Arcady Martin's novel, A Memory Called Empire. That story was science fiction instead of fantasy, but her main character goes to work in the capital of this huge galactic empire. People in the empire condescend to her because she's from an outer planet, and she needs to be protective of her homeland, but she still gets seduced by this magnificent imperial culture. And then I realized, There are themes of empire and colonialism all over speculative fiction right now. There's a novel from 2021 called The Master of Jinn by P. Jelly Clark. It's part of a series of works he created that imagines what if Egyptians in the late 19th century were able to overthrow British colonization with the magic of jinns, or genies as they're known in the West. There was also the 2016 novel Everfair by Nisi Shawl, which imagines what if the Belgian Congo was liberated in the 19th century and turned into a steampunk utopia. And there's the novel Sorcerer to the Crown by Zen Cho from 2015, which also had a sequel that came out four years later. That series takes place in a 19th century where the British Empire uses magic to dominate the world. But the most powerful magic users in the British government were born in India and Africa, which causes all sorts of complications. Now, I've read plenty of books that imagine stories of magic that are set at the height of the British Empire. But until recently, not many of them were grappling with the impact of empire on the rest of the world. And I find it interesting that these books are coming out at a time when teaching history has become very controversial on both sides of the Atlantic. Some adults have argued that if children at a young and impressionable age learn the full truth of their nation's history, 
It might cause them to feel ashamed and angry to the point where it could permanently damage their sense of national pride. But what happens when we use fantasy to recreate the past, especially very traumatic periods in history? How do stories of magic and wondrous technology help us understand the legacy of colonialism and imperialism in a different way than realistic stories? After the break, I will talk with some of the authors that I mentioned about why and how they rewrote history. For the writer Nisi Shawl, it started with steampunk. If you can remember back to 10 or even 15 years ago, steampunk was all the rage. Steampunk imagines modern technology, or even fantastical technology, being created with equipment from the 19th or early 20th century, like a DIY computer made entirely out of typewriter parts. There is also steampunk fashion, where people somehow manage to look cool while wearing top hats and monocles. In 2009, Nisi was invited to speak on a panel about steampunk literature at the World Fantasy Convention. Nisi thought they were a strange fit for this panel, and they were dreading the thought of going. I thought, why do I hate steampunk? <laughs> because I did, uh, and I have a deep and abiding love of Victorian literature, and I am actually kind of kinky about gears and, you know, metal and gaskets and all of that sort of steampunk stuff. And I figured out what it was, that it was far too supportive of European colonialism. And I got up there and I said my piece about hating steampunk in front of all of these people who were aficionados, they were aghast. I mean, you know, what, what could they do? This was supposed to be a very pro steampunk panel. Because I'm the kind of person who doesn't just like to complain about things, I like to make them better. I said that I would write the kind of steampunk novel that questioned and subverted the idea that imperialism and colonialism were the backbone of steampunk. At the time, they happened to be reading a nonfiction book about the Belgian Congo. Specifically, it was about how King Leopold II colonized and plundered that part of Africa. That was in my mind. And I said, I will write about this. I said, and I will make you beg to read it. <laughs> We will get back to Nisi later in the episode to find out how they turned one of the worst human rights abuses of the 19th century into a story about hope and ingenuity. But let's move on now to the novelist, Zen Cho. She was raised in Malaysia, which used to be a British colony. She had always been an Anglophile growing up. She really loved classic English novels. And then she moved to London to attend university. It was strange kind of relating to this culture that in a way I had grown up with as mediated through books, but in a way I, I didn't really know anything about because obviously I'd never lived there before. As she was dealing with this culture shock, she went to an art museum. She was looking at the old paintings of English life, and suddenly she realized not everybody in these paintings is white. 
the kind of non-white presence in you know these depictions of an era that in pop culture is often depicted as very white really intrigued me. And that inspired her novel, Sorcerer to the Crown. That kind of was one of the kind of initial triggers, kind of start to think, oh, you know, here's a painting of, say, a 19th century scene. And there's just like this little boy who's a page boy and he's black and he's the only black person in this picture. And what, what must that have been like? And kind of thinking about that gave rise to the characters of Zacharias, who's the main character of Sorcerer to the Crown. And he's, you know, Britain's first African sorcerer royal. And he basically was kind of adopted by his parents who are, you know, white British people. Zen did not want to do a story like Bridgerton, which is set in a 19th century where race seems to not even be an issue. Race is definitely an issue for Zacharias, her main character, and another character named Prunella, who comes from India. What magic did, you know, making it a fantasy, it gave me a way of kind of equalizing them, you know, like, so Zacharias is in the position he's in because he has magical talent, like, and, and that's why he's adopted by this kind of wealthy white guy and, and who, who then makes him his ward. And Prunella equally, like, her kind of magical talents kind of give her the ability to make her way in the society that she otherwise, you know, wouldn't have many advantages in. But it was also really important to her that the book had a sense of charm and adventure. It was fun to read. I wanted to write the kind of book that you might read when you're having a cold and you just need a bit of distraction, but then also have a little bit of that, you know, investigating the workings of empire, how Britain's wealth is founded, was founded, and is founded, I guess, in that exploitation, um, its overseas territories. Here's the actress Neka Okoye, reading part of an excerpt from Sorcerer to the Crown. It had not been three months since Zacharias Wythe had taken up the staff of the Sorcerer Royal, not so long since his predecessor, Sir Stephen Wythe, had died. He was an object of general interest, and to the great increase of Lady Frances's complacency, more than one pair of eyes followed his progress around her drawing room. Zacharias Wythe could not fail to draw attention wherever he went, the dark hue of his skin would mark him out among any assembly of his colleagues, but he was also remarkable for his height and the handsomeness of his features, which was not impaired by his rather melancholy expression. Perhaps the last was not surprising in one who had entered into his office in such tragic circumstances, and at a time when the affairs of English thaumaturgy were approaching an unprecedented crisis. Stranger than his colour, however, and more distressing than any other circumstance, was the fact that Zacharias' wife had no familiar, though he bore the Sorcerer Royal's ancient staff. Lady Frances's guests did not hesitate to tell each other what they thought of this curious absence. I should not like to show my spells to anyone in their current state, said Zacharias now. Lady Wythe was too wise to press the point. Well then, perhaps we ought to see to your being introduced to some of the young ladies here. Lady Frances said they might get up a dance after dinner. There cannot be any objection to your joining in, and it would be a pity if any young lady were compelled to sit out a dance for want of a partner. Zacharias's look of consternation was comical. I scarcely think they'll be pleased to be offered such a partner. You forget in your partiality what a very alarming object I am. Nonsense, cried Lady Wife. You are precisely the kind of creature girls like best to swoon over. Dark, mysterious, quiet. The very image of romance. Think of Othello. His romance came to no good end, said Zacharias. 
after Nisi Shaw went on that panel about steampunk and declared that they were going to write a fun steampunk novel set in the Congo. And I will make you beg to read it. (laughs) They went deep into research mode. They became interested in a group of English socialists called the Fabian Society. And this is a real group that was founded in the 19th century. So Nisi imagined, what if the Fabian Society had teamed up with African-American missionaries to purchase land in the Congo from King Leopold, and within that land, they set up a free state called Everfair? Because all Leopold cared about was getting rich. So if he could just have people give him money, then he would be satisfied, they would be satisfied, and there would be an adventure. In their research, Nisi also came across Fordlandia, which is a town that Henry Ford created in Brazil. If Henry Ford could do that, why not a bunch of actual socialists? So, you know, finding out about how Fordlandia worked informed how I set up Everfair. And what about the steampunk elements? I mean, did you get to a point where you started to enjoy that? Well, of course I enjoyed it because I I do enjoy that kind of stuff, you know, rubber, gaskets, brass, bring it on. I tried to be very particular about how the air canoes, I called them, the airships, how they docked, you know, and the procedures of mooring them to different towers. And I tried to be very specific about their dimensions and their carrying capability and all that kind of stuff. It also seems to, I mean, there's been a lot of calls for for stories about, I mean, the phrase I always hear is black joy instead of historical trauma, revisiting historical trauma over and over again, but also still acknowledging the past at the same time. It sounds like this kind of fits into that as well. Yes. Yes, I would say so. Um, I mean, there are horrible things that happen, but I also wanted to make sure that there was where there were great things. There were mechanical swings that people used to cross flooded streets. And I wanted to make sure that there was support for that enjoyment, that Black joy, yeah. Here's the actress Neka Okoye reading part of an excerpt from Everfair. Color crept into the sky, blue soaking through the black. Then the sun appeared to rise out of the east, at first silently but soon accompanied by a faint droning hum. Louder, louder, blinded by the dawn, they couldn't see the air canoe until it had come so near that many of its details were also suddenly visible. Brown mottling the swelling red sides of what looked like a giant gourd, lines connecting that thing to an elongated nest-like construction below, faces above the nest's high sides. The growling of the air canoe's engine had grown to a roar like a waterfall. It was matched by the astonished cries it provoked from his local subjects as they poured from their homes and out over the countryside. Above all that noise came shouting from the flying boat, indistinguishable words. Then the device's sound was somehow dampened. The shouts could now be understood. Grab hold! Pull us to you and hold us still! Quickly, Mwenda commanded his people to do this. Other young men jumped high and caught the ropes and hauled the air canoe to where he sat. A wood and fibre ladder was lowered. As his warriors climbed, the air canoe sank, so that by the time the king mounted it, several rungs lay on the ground. He had only five hands of steps, five steps per hand, to take upward before his fighters pulled him carefully over the boat's rim. 
Two of his soldiers stood in the far end next to a tall, prosperous man clothed in shirt and trousers. The others gathered together around their king on guard. There were three other passengers already aboard. The fourth passenger was a woman, a white. She smiled directly at him and spoke. Greetings, great king. It was she who had called to them earlier. The third novelist that I spoke with is P. Jelly Clark. He is a history professor at UConn, and he's been writing the Dead Jin series, which imagines what if Egypt overthrew the British Empire with the help of Jin magic. Like Nisi, the spark for the series began with a critique of steampunk, and he wanted to see if he could turn historical trauma into a hopeful story. At first, he started looking at Sudan and the uprising in the 1880s, led by Mohammed Ahmad against the British army. Where they infamously used the Maxim gun to bow down, you know, thousands of modest Sudanese who are rebelling, who are launching this rebellion. And I remember I wanted to make that the event where somehow magic would turn the Maxim guns into sand or, or render them simply inoperable. But as he was delving into research, he realized that he needed to set the story a few decades later. And that led him to Cairo. And then my other reason was simply any writer's dream. When you go doing research, you want the place that has the most written on it. And Cairo, I mean, you, it's an ancient city. It's a very old city. It's got, and it's a crossroad city. And he got to keep one of his original ideas, that a Sudanese mystic character was the person who figured out how to access jinn magic. Because I have this notion that there were jinn always existing in our world. There were some who were here, but then there was a wall between us and the larger world. And that's what the Sudanese mystic, you know, shatters in many ways. And once he decided how Egypt would free itself, he realized that he had a brand new nation to build in his mind. So now I'm, I'm not only the anti-colonial, I'm now delving into the quote-unquote post-colonial. What does that really look like? And so that became, you know, how do I build this? And so I said, you know, the Egypt of the time did have a king, so I decided to keep the monarchy. And in this one, I call it a peaceful revolution where the monarchy allied and said, well, there'll be a monarchy, but it'll be weak. And we'll now have a parliamentary system and we'll have various parties and we'll introduce democracy. But they are going through all of the things all young democracies go through. Who has rights? Who is a citizen? And I have the jinn there playing this role, right? That it turns out there's often a story of jinn being builders. And so I incorporate that here where they, they are now technological builders. They take to the age very well. They begin building airships and different things. And so over a short period of time, they managed to turn Cairo, which has always been a hub, into an even greater metropolis that begins rivaling Paris and London. Yeah. So you said earlier when you're like, well, you know, you wanted to create this modern idea of, of Cairo, but then it sounds like there's certain moments where you have to make sure like, okay, what would their idea of modernism be like? Were there ever moments that you were like, oh, they should have this, 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 and then saying, wait, is this my 21st century Western American idea of what I think they should be doing? Like, did you ever have those moments as you were trying to figure this out? Yeah, and I, I still do. And sometimes I'm fine with saying, hey, you know what? I've got magic in here. Why not? You know, have certain things. And But really, I was guided by really all of the politics that was going on in Egypt during that period. There was a very strong nationalist movement. 
And if you look at the things many of them are arguing for and intellectuals, there's nothing I'm talking about there from the women's movement to uh, ideas of citizenship. There's nothing there um, that I have brought like this. Oh, Eureka. Like I thought this up myself. Sometimes a lot of times you think, well, I may be thinking too modern. You're like, oh, no, actually. (laughs) I was wondering that too at first when I was reading the book I was just like wow I mean this is wonderful this all this fem- you know this, this feminist movement that you've created and then I started reading interviews with you and you're just like no I mean like um, the main character is actually based on a real woman from Egypt at the time yeah um, yeah um, El Shari and so she takes off her veil for a famous entry. she becomes an Egyptian feminist and th- that's still something that occurred even though it occurred I simply move up the date by I think a decade or so the character that he's referring to in the novel the one who was based on a real person in history, is named Fatma. And in the story, Fatma works for an Egyptian government agency, which acts as a liaison between the jinn and the human population. Here is Neka Okoye reading part of an excerpt from A Master of Jinn. Fatma shook her head. This was precisely why he didn't go around opening up mystical bottles. Why was that so hard for people to understand? Well... Time to earn her pay. Oh, great one, she called out. I would petition for these two who have wronged you. The married turned his horned head, that fiery gaze scrutinizing. You have been in the company of other jinn. His sharp nose inhaled and wrinkled in distaste. Are you a mortal enchantress? Not an enchantress. Dealing with magic is just in my line of work. The married seemed to accept that answer, or he didn't care. Do you know why I bound myself to slumber, not enchantress? Because I grew tired of your kind, greedy, selfish, ever seeking to satisfy your wants. I could no longer stomach the sight of you, the stink of you, your ugly little faces. I slept to escape you all, in the hopes that when I next awakened you would be gone, struck down by a blessed illness or slaughtered in one of your endless wars. But here I am, and you are still here. Fatima blinked at the tirade. Of all the jinn these two had to go and wake up, it had to be a bigot. You've been in self-exile in that bottle for at least a thousand years, so let me catch you up. There are more of us chattering mortals than you might guess. Lots more. More of your kind, too, crossed over to this world. Jin live among us now, work with us, follow our laws. Try extending that third eye of yours. See what's become of the world while you slept. The married didn't react right away. Finally, he closed both his eyes at the same time, widening the third on his forehead until it flared with brilliance. When he reopened his remaining eyes, they looked startled. You speak truth. So many more jinn in this world working alongside mortals, living among them, mating with... Yes, all of that, Fatma cut in. Disgusting. People often use the term world-building when talking about speculative fiction. And imperialism is a type of world-building. Although Zen Cho says the tools of imperialism and colonialism can be used to create anti-colonial fantasies. It's interesting to think of imperialism as, as world building because one of the kind of, it's almost a cliche, but like one of the things they say about empire, obviously, you know, it's a, a lot of it, it was kind of um, imposed by these these tools of the map, you know, mapping 
quote unquote unknown territories and and the census kind of pinning peoples down and kind of giving them categories, giving them names that they might not necessarily have given themselves. And obviously, you know, with with fantasy novels opening it and that having that that map at the beginning, I mean, that's kind of an interesting connection. Oh, that's so true. I actually did a whole episode about fantasy maps. Yeah. And the kind of, you know, and the kind of stereotype about, you know, maybe more traditional fantasy being these ide- this idea that you have these very clearly defined races, right? Like dividing the world into these, these categories. That's why P. Jelly Clark made sure that his early drafts were seen by a sensitivity reader. And this person helped make sure that he wasn't drawing on stereotypes. Like there's a scene in his book where a bigoted white character, who was based on a real historical figure, gets beheaded by a magic user. I loved that. And I was like, yeah, that shut him up. That was a great one. She was like, she was like, I love that you shut him up. But, you know, cutting off heads, everyone here is a little sensitive about Western media. And I was like, how can I miss that? But because it's not because it's not something that I live with continually, where it's that thing that I wince when I see it. It's that stereotype that I tense up about. Is that stereotype that nags me in the back of my head, and I know it's coming there. It was in forefront for me, and that's why sensitivity readers are so are so important because something that I thought I would immediately catch, I did not. So I changed that. Sensitivity readers are a fairly recent phenomenon in publishing, but so is the idea of publishing fantasy novels that take place outside of white spaces. Nisi Shaw has seen these changes firsthand. After their novel Everfair came out in 2016, it was one of their best-selling books. So they pitched the idea of a sequel, but the publisher told them Everfair didn't make enough money. Which flabbergasted me. I was like, wait, I earned out my advance. I've gotten thousands of dollars of royalties. How is this not enough money? That was before the film Black Panther came out. Suddenly, the publisher was very interested in a sequel, two years after Nisi pitched the idea. Like, what were we thinking? I remember one of the uh, editors said to me, what were we thinking? How could we have, like, not snapped up a sequel immediately? Last year, Nisi submitted a draft of the sequel, which is called Kinning. They really loved it, but they wanted more. (laughs) In fact, Nisi's already working on a third book in the series. P. Jelly Clark says, These books might seem new to white publishers or readers, but the ideas in them are not new. Any writer coming from a marginalized, back, marginalized background, any writer coming from places uh, that were colonized, we've been thinking this stuff up forever. <laughs> right? I think the industry has decided it can take a chance on this. There are probably a lot of reasons, but the reasons I would give the most is that people have been complaining about it. People have been knocking on those doors, pushing and pushing. And thankfully, we've gotten people also not uh, only, you know, writing, but now within the industry itself. I don't know that in 2016, when I put out a call for somebody who's interested in a dead gen in Cairo, because it was just random. I put it out on, on Facebook. A dead gen in Cairo was the first book in his gin series. Uh, if Diana Foe, at the time, editor of Tor, wasn't there, uh, who was looking purposely for diverse being steampunk, she'd created a whole blog basically called Beyond Victoriana about diverse steampunk. If she was not there to see my story, 
I don't know if anyone at Tor would have picked it up. I think another reason why these books are finding an audience is because fantasy can be a helpful way to deal with difficult subjects that people might otherwise avoid. And not just in the West. Zen Cho wrote a fantasy novella that was set during a real period of the Cold War, when the Malaysian government was fighting communist insurgents. And that's a really, really fraught history. You know, that's one that is not really spoken about in a direct way in kind of mainstream Malaysian media and society. So telling it head on would have felt quite challenging to me. So fantasy was kind of a distancing mechanism. History is not written in stone. History is a story that we tell. And a fantasy story can make those stone statues come to life. That's why Nisi Shaw writes these stories. Because if you re-examine the past, that tends to make you think differently about the present, which then can, of course, influence how you decide to go on into the future. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Neka Okoye, who did the readings. Also thanks to Nisi Shaw, Sen Cho, and P. Jelly Clark, who credits his mother for making him aware of the blind spots in fantasy genres at a very young age. Uh, I wasn't allowed to see Star Wars when it first came out because there were no black people in it. My mother was like, no. <laughs> and I said, but mom, it's set in a galaxy long time ago. And she was like, well, there were definitely no white people before black people, so <laughs> you're definitely not seeing it. <laughs> My assistant producer is Stephanie Billman. You can follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I also put a list of all the books that we mentioned and more in the show notes. There is now an ad-free version of Imaginary Worlds that you can subscribe to in Apple Podcasts. It's very easy. You just click the button, and from that point on, you pay just $4.99 a month to get all upcoming episodes of Imaginary Worlds ad-free, and you'll be able to listen to the entire back catalog ad-free as well. I set up a similar benefit for Patreon subscribers. If you're on the third or fourth tier of Patreon subscribers, you'll get a private RSS feed, which you can put into most podcasting apps, and you'll be able to hear episodes of Imaginary Worlds ad-free. Speaking of Patreon, at different levels, you can get either free Imaginary World stickers, a mug, a t-shirt, and a link to a Dropbox account which has a full-length interviews of every guest in every episode. As always, you can learn more about the show and subscribe to our newsletter at imaginaryworldspodcast.org. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. 
Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com. 